Welcome everyone. It's time for another episode of Tokenomics. And today, what an exciting episode. An absolute killer in the game industry. Someone with an incredible past uh, who's just taken part in uh, uh, founding a new Web3 gaming startup. Sarah Fuchs is here of Muse Collective. Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh, Ethan, thank you so much. And I'm so sorry about your voice today. I'll try and do my best to talk as much as possible. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I don't know. This is kind of a funny one. I don't know if you remember how we met, but we were um, on the the light rail in San Francisco going to Noe Valley where, where we both lived. And I think I spotted you talking to Tim Schaefer <laughs> about right. game development. And yep. as soon as he got off the bus, I was I went up to you and I was like, hey, I make games too, right? That's hilarious. I remember that. I remember talking to Tim. Those were back in the days when we commuted to work and we lived in Noe Valley. And mm -hmm. I think we all walked to Whole Foods together. I think mm -hmm. that, that happened as well. But yeah, I was, I was just chatting with Tim. I don't know him super well, but I had interviewed with him, you know, years prior. And it was great to meet you and to realize how much our paths have crossed, you know, with me at NG Moco and you at Network. Um, so, yeah. and also knowing that we were all this Noe Valley crowd. Right. Yeah. And I, I feel like then from then on for a couple of years, I used to uh, run into you at Whole Foods and at the farmer's yeah. market. Yeah. Um, and and uh, uh, until uh, my wife and I booked it out to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, so that our kids could uh, run, a, run around on, on a lawn. Well, I've always wanted to go to Charleston, so if there's a Whole Foods there, let's plan a meetup. <laughs> and we can. I'm originally from the South as well. I'm from Nashville, and so okay. you know it'd be, it'd be great to get back and and see a new town. Yeah, it's the 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 best food. Some of the best food in the world. It's a great place mm -hmm. to be. So let me know if you're around here. I will. All right. So so for those who who don't know you personally, like I do, can you give us a quick background of your experience in game development? I mean, I'm not joking around when. Your, your resume, your experiences, the games you've worked on and the studios you've, you've helped lead, it's, it's super impressive and inspiring. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. I have, looking back on it now, I feel like I have had this great opportunity after opportunity to make amazing product and work with wonderful people. And I, the way I started, I just kind of fell into games. I wasn't a passionate gamer. I wasn't looking for this as my career. Like I said, I grew up in Nashville. I went to school in Washington, D.C. And I wanted to move to San Francisco because I had spent a summer working in San Francisco selling shoes. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's move to San Francisco. I'm going to get a job in PR and I'm going to mm -hmm. you know, do nonprofit work and it's going to be great. And I came out and there were, there were no jobs at the time in 2000, mm -hmm. 2001. And I got a job in um, gaming PR. And I was like, what is this? I have no idea what this is. I have no idea right. about this world. And so I kind of fell in, dove in. And about a year after I started working at that PR agency, they got Grand Theft Auto 3 as a client, which was huge. Uh, and so yeah. they, they disbanded the company and the founder went and worked uh, internally at Rockstar. And so I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And my housemate at the time, his girlfriend was a recruiter for Electronic Arts. And I said to her, you know, as a recruiter, would you just take a look at my resume and give me some feedback? I'm applying for all these positions. And she said, well, you know, you have relevant experience. Do you want to work as a, do you want to interview as a production assistant? And I was like, I don't know what this is about, but sure. I drove down to Redwood Shores and I interviewed um, for a position on James Bond, Everything or Nothing as an uh, art production assistant. I followed around the most amazing art director, David Carson, who was <laughs> kind of super famous at the time. He had done VFX for uh, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and all these cool movies. And I really got my start in games just um, following him around and learning how, how it works. And so this is a long story, but I figured since you've got a sore throat, I'll just tell mm -hmm. you the whole thing. Um, so I was on James Bond, Everything or Nothing, and then um, The Sims 2 came up. And I was like, mm. oh, this is amazing. And Maxis at that time was still in Walnut Creek. And they sent me kind of as an emissary producer over to Walnut Creek. And I'm like, I don't know anything about uh, the, the, the Maxis Electronic Arts right. acquisition. But here, here I go. And I really found my people at Maxis. I absolutely loved working on The Sims 2. It was an incredible experience. It was definitely one of those six-day-a-week uh, insane mm -hmm. pre-kids. I couldn't do that kind of thing now. Um, but I loved working on The Sims 2. And then when that was over, they asked me to come and work on what The Godfather. Did, what, did you, yeah. uh, cause what did you do on The Sims 2 team? 
so I was a producer. I helped coordinate, um, you know, various features. I, I, I produced the other producers in a way. I wasn't mm -hmm. an executive producer. I was still quite junior at the time, but I was a feature producer. And so anything, you know, I don't know, the pool had a, its own producer. And so I made sure that every one of those producers had, had what they needed. Um, I bet and made that sure person that had a lot of fun R&D days. Oh my gosh, cool it was really fun. It was really fun. That was, I would say that The Sims 2 was definitely one of the most fun games that I've ever worked on because I loved the game. I mm -hmm. loved the product and I loved the people working on it. But yes, we were a big team. And then we had to move to Redwood Shores and that was really a tough, um, you mm -hmm. know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of unhappiness from the Walnut Creek Maxis establishment. So we worked on that for a while and then they wanted me to work on Godfather I really didn't want to work on The Godfather because it's mm -hmm. not my type of game. It was extremely violent. It was a 200-person team. I was one of maybe 10 women on the mm -hmm. team. And it was just, and I remember, I have, this, I have this vivid memory of being in a huge team meeting and somebody was doing a demo and they were showing somebody garroting a grandmother, like mm -hmm. murdering her. And everyone was like, woohoo, yes! Let me, do it. Let me do an impression. Was it like, yeah. watch this awesome shit? <laughs> And then blood yes. just splurts out of this grandmother and in yes. a room of 190 young men start, yes. yeah, and you're just exactly. sitting there like, like this is a parody yeah. of life with all the color yeah. draining from your face. Did I nail it? That, that was exactly it. I actually, you forgot that I threw up a little bit in my mouth. I think also everybody is just like cheering and I'm like, right. what am I? What am I doing? And at the time, also, Godfather, I don't know if you know anything about it, but we were not an easy, it was not an easy place to work. It was very, I, yeah. It was tough. I'm not, I won't I was, go too much into that. When, when that was in development, I was in the phase at EA where I was working for Rich Hillman and, mm -hmm. and Michael John, who were great mentors, yeah. Shannon Sudstill. And I was kind of being farmed out, like feeling my way around EA. Mm -hmm. And I remember there were different projects where I'd say like, hey, I'm kind of interested in, in this. And they would just kind of go like, team's too big. You're, you're just yeah. not going to like it. You're just, you're not, you have too much ambition. It's not for you. That, I wish I had somebody that took me under their wing in that way. Um, that I would have loved to have been rescued from that. But ultimately the Godfather was a toxic work environment. There's yeah. no other way, there's no other way to say it. And so I quit mm -hmm. and I, I was like, I'm done with games forever. Um, I'm going to go and volunteer at my brother's school. My brother was a principal at a school in Oakland that he'd started. He was doing this great stuff for humanity and I'm making the godfather. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I volunteered at his library for about a month. And then I was like, oh, rent's due. What's, what are we <laughs> going to do? And at that time, Activision had a studio called Z-Axis um, in Foster City that was working on X-Men, the official game. Right. And I went and I was like, okay, I'll go back into games for a bit. We'll do this. I worked, I was a development director and I, we were making that game. And after about nine or 10 months, uh, someone accidentally sent out a spreadsheet of every person at Z-Axis, their role and their salary, oh. which was a big mistake. Right. But I found, I found out that um, there was another guy that I worked with and mm -hmm. he did the exact same job. I was just engineering and he was art and he made uh, $30,000 more than I did. Wow. And yeah, it's crazy. And the, the, did you have more years of experience as him? Same? No, we had the same. We had the okay. same. And so inequality is, is a real thing. And yeah. um, the, the wage gap is a real thing. And I went to my boss and I was like, this is unacceptable. And they're like, yeah, we know it's, it's not great, but let's talk about it at your next yearly review and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. And around that time, um, my friend Carol was working on Spore and she said, hey, we're doing this really cool it's project. This legendary Will. game producer, Carol Shaw, right? That is correct. Yes. My good friend, Carol Shaw. Um, who I'd worked with on The Sims 2 and who I'd, you know, known for a long time. And she called me up and she said, we're, we're working on Spore. Do you want to come? We're, we, we're, we need some help. We need production help for our pollinated ninjas team, which was really the server, <laughs> the server mm -hmm. team. And I went and I joined Spore. And that was amazing, of course, and worked there for three years and had just an incredible time. Spore was this incredible, incredible project that had so much vision, but I think then was and ended up kind of being hampered by all of the restrictions that were put on it. We had mm -hmm. to work within this corporate environment, and that wasn't great for anybody. Um, got laid off on my maternity leave when I was on Spore, Ooh. which wow. was which you know is not a thing anymore. I it was yeah. yeah. I'm really I'm really going into like the painful history, Ethan. Is this what you, is this what you want to hear? <laughs> it's a, this, this is a show about tears and feelings, but yeah. and then also game development. That's yeah. it's kind of my mo. <laughs>
Well, I loved the game development part of it, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, at that time, you know, th- that was, it was really tough. And I was like, what's happening? This is crazy. I love Maxis. They always said they loved me, but, you know, I had somebody tell me that I'd never be the same again after having a baby, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, at the, was that know, a, was that a male or a female? It was a male. It was a male. It was that protect, uh, that yeah. sounds like a fireable offense in today's climate. Just saying, it that. would be a fireable offense. And I wasn't going to sue. I'm not a litigious person. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I would be now if that happened now. Believe me, I would eviscerate them. But mm-hmm. it just was. I was so shocked that um, that I, I I couldn't believe it. And I had this new baby, and I'm like, "What are you? I'm I'm feeding this baby, and you're telling me I'm laid off? What?" And so. I took about a, a six month break and was trying to be with the baby and then figure out what I really wanted to do. And what I really wanted to do was not go back to work full time right away. Mm-hmm. And so I think around that time I interviewed with Double Fine and, you know, had long interviews and they're like, you know, and I said, I want to work three to four days a week as I'm getting back on my feet. And they're like, no, this is not happening. This is just not, you know, right. it's not something we can do. And so Carol Shaw again Again, mm-hmm. she's she's really helped shape my career. Called me up and she was said, "Hey, we're working at this new mobile studio called Njimoko. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to come?" And I'm like, "Look, I really want to work three days a week." And she's like, "Well, you're awesome, so we'll support that." And I was like, "What a difference! What an amazing difference!" Mm-hmm. And so I went to work at Njimoko three days a week. Um, had my second mm-hmm. baby. Did not get laid off. Right. Um, and, and we worked on. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say just uh, NG Moco, founded mm-hmm. by uh, Neil Young, Bob Stevenson, mm-hmm. Steve Detweiler, Alan Yu, the same people yep. who then founded Network. And I mean, I just want to give a shout out to the support because the, the same people who said who were okay approving a culture of great people can get hired and work three days a week if that's the way to get them in the door. You know, these are the same people who pre-COVID let me move from San Francisco to Charleston to start an office with three other people working remotely in support of other projects. Like there's, there's a completely different mindset of leadership between um, you're getting laid off in maternity leave versus mm-hmm. what does it take to get and retain the, the best people in the business and, and also Ethan Levy, who's yes, okay, but that's right. amusing, amusing. No, at no, least. more than just amusing. Uh, but that's totally true. I think the culture is so important and having mm-hmm. worked in such toxic cultures and such horrible environments to be able to go somewhere where you're supported is a game changer, literally. And yes, so huge shout out to early NGMoco for letting us do that. That was awesome. And mm-hmm. I got to work on amazing, amazing product. Back then, it was the very first free to play mm-hmm. um mobile games and I liken what's happening with web three right now to kind of the feeling of of mobile free to play. And I worked on this amazing game called we rule. Mm -hmm. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know what a PM was. Didn't know that's what I was doing um, because we didn't have that terminology, but got to make these decisions and made a ton of money for this game. We rule that then Jimmy Fallon was playing and it was really like the, one of the first big mobile free to play games. And I loved that. Um, Mm -hmm. Then we were acquired by DNA, and I did I did a weird stint of trying to be a culture person to help you know mesh the two cultures. Um, ultimately, that didn't work, and I went and I took my first real swing and a miss career-wise for me. After that, I went to be the VP of production at Enway, mm-hmm. and I think I was really you know wooed by the title, and that's mm-hmm. not great. You know, I was wooed by yeah. the title, and I don't belong making action MMORPGs for the Korean and Chinese markets. I mean, there are people who love those types of games and for whom that is perfect. But for me, action MMORPGs aren't, aren't my thing. So I left and EA called again. And Mm -hmm. I said, no way. I'm not going back to EA. This would be my third time at EA. It's not happening. Mm. Um, And they're like, but it's the Sims and it's mobile. And it's The Sims, which is your favorite IP. And it's mobile, which is your area of expertise. And I said, look, I can't do it. I'm not going back into that environment. And they're like, but do it. It's going to be awesome. So they convinced me. They said everything was going to be different. And I went back and I worked on The Sims Mobile. (laughs) They said everything's going to be different. Then the first day you get to a product review, someone's like, this is our Granny Garroting expansion. The Sims is going where it's never gone before. You're like, oh, God, not again. (laughs) Very close. Similar. (laughs) 
This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Um, the challenge I had there was in six months, sorry, in a year and 10 months that I was there, I had six different bosses oh on my, The yeah. Sims Mobile. And every single one was like, let's go in this direction. Let's go in this direction. Let's get rid of wants and needs. And I'm like, have mm -hmm. you played The Sims? Do you like, right. are you? And then my last boss that they hired to be, um, you know, to be my supervisor had neither mobile nor Sims experience, but was really, really good at making decks. And so mm -hmm. the, the job was to make decks, to go up the chain of command at EA and be like, can you approve this? And so ultimately I wasn't happy. I didn't want to just make decks. I wanted to make product. And so Covet Fashion called mm -hmm. and I said, well, what's this? This is something I could be really into. And it was some former EA people that I'd worked with. And I was like, I don't know about this. And they're like, look, you can make this great product. You know, Covet's four years old. It's successful. It's kind of on the decline, but let's see if we can bring it back. And they essentially gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted on Covet. And I ended up, um, you know, getting to hire a team of amazing people. I think we ended up switching the team out a lot and hiring amazing people. And in three years, we doubled our bookings. And oh hi, who's this that? Is, this might require some editing, but uh, uh, this is Eliza, and hi, Eliza. she uh, uh, needs me to put a lock on my tiny closet door. That's okay. You know what? I don't think we should edit it out because this is life now. And hi, Eliza. Eliza, can you say hi? Yeah, are you waving. How old are you, Eliza? Uh, she's she's oh, two. Oh, she's How old are you, Eliza? She's two. Okay, well, right. it, does, it doesn't require editing as far as I'm concerned. But getting back to Covet, um, again, they gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. My job was not making decks all day to prove that, yes, I knew what I was talking about. My job was to inspire a great team, hire a great team, inspire them, remove roadblocks from them. And ultimately, we ended up doubling our bookings in three years and turning around this that's, game. That's amazing yeah. success. How long had the yeah. game been on the market at that point? It had been on four years when I started, mm -hmm. and I was there for about four years, and we had amazing success. I mean, that's, that's, that's an incredible turnaround or an incredible reinvigoration story. Yeah. I want to dig into that a little bit. What mm -hmm. are some of the keys? Like, how did you, how did you engineer that? Because I've been on a number of attempted turnarounds where it's mm -hmm. like this game's been in soft launch for two years. Mm -hmm. If we can just double day 30 retention, we've got a yep. hit. 
This yep. is like then spend 18 months not moving day 30 retention yep. by one point, you know? Well, I totally, completely understand. I think the key for me was hiring an amazing team who was genuinely passionate about what we were doing. So the team that had been working on it for four years, a lot of them were tired. A lot of them, somebody, when I, when I went um, and I started at Covet, one thing I always do when I join a new team is I speak to each person and I say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? They'll tell me. And then I'll say, well, what would it take to get you to a 10? And that usually sparks conversation about what's good and what's bad. And I had somebody say to me. I am going to steal that. Yeah, please do. Please do. Because it really, uh, it gives you a, a marker. And I did that every January, every year that I was there with the entire team. And so I had one guy tell me, I'm just here for my homies. He literally said that. And I said, well, no, see ya. That's um, great. Because you're there for four years. It's a job. I wanted people who were passionate about mm -hmm. what we were doing. And what we were doing is building a product for women. And, you know, we know that more than half of mobile gamers in the U.S. are women. We know that there's, million, there's a global population of women playing games. And the people who make games should look like the people playing the games. And so mm -hmm. I got to hire this team of incredible women and men, too. We're not, we're, we are not discriminatory, but who were really passionate about um, building product. And I have four kids, so I love that Eliza is in our is in our. Um, She's saying, I want to play a game. Hopefully she gets summoned for nap time soon. Good. Uh, well, that'll, if, if she doesn't, she can. You going to have a nap? Yeah. I have a good nap. Oh, good, Eliza. Oh, I love a nap. Um, can I have a nap? So it's, the people. It's funny because yeah. I, I started, well, my career started in QA on a Star Wars game, but the first Daddy. games I designed were, you know, Diner Dash and uh -huh. um, Mr., you know, hidden object games and games primarily for women. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly male teams. Yeah. And I just like, I remember having the insight, Daddy. like, if I could make a game about shoes, it would be a giant hit. But I had no, that was as far as I could take the insight. Yeah. I like talked to people. I talked to uh, women I was friends with. I tried mm -hmm. to understand what was so alluring about mm -hmm. shoes because I have no fashion sense at all. And like, I just never had the inspiration. I couldn't bridge the gap between this insight and what would be game design. And like, Covet yeah. is proven that, uh, you know, between Covet and Love Nikki, like mm -hmm. there's a giant audience of highly engaged, highly spending uh, players who want games that are authentically about fashion. It's and I, you know, maybe true. if I had five female game designers to work with, maybe I could have helped help figure that shoe idea out. But I don't know. Yeah, you. De that's the key, Ethan. Like, you can't be a bunch of like white dudes sitting in office saying this is what I think women like. Um, and we have am, to have. Diversity. I'm so aware of my place in the universe yeah. as a 40 year old white guy now. Like, yeah. I mean, like we I'm need 40-year-old white guys, too. We had, you know, we had great people on the team who were, who were um, male, but diversity is key. I mean, we want people who look like, like I said, the people building the game should look like the people playing the game, and that is every race and color and religion and gender there is. Like, the more diversity, the better your product is going to be, and we really took that to heart when we were building the Covet team. Uh, on, on that, you mm -hmm. know, hiring, what, what steps can someone take? Try and um, authentically and specifically hire a more diverse squad because, you know. <laughs> well, Eliza knows the answer and it's, you know, there are a lot of things. But for me, it's build a culture that supports people who have different needs and build a culture that attracts the best people. And if you are having, if you're, you know, saying what Elon Musk is doing right now, which is you, you must be in the office, yeah, you must work yeah. 16 hour weeks, that's not conducive to trying to also have a family. And you don't just need to have a family to want to have a life. People who want to go to their yoga class at six or do whatever it is that's important to them should be supported and should have an environment that says, we care about you. And you see these posts all the time where it says, you know, I'm a leader that doesn't care about what time my people get there. I just care about their work product. But that's true. It's like you as a leader must set an example. You cannot be a workaholic. Work cannot be your life. It has to be something that you're passionate about and something that inspires you. But you have to create in the environment where people can be creative. And for me, I want to pick up my kids from school.
Mm-hmm. Like that's the commitment that I want to make. And somebody else might want to do a pottery class, but creating an environment that allows that and genuinely cares. You must genuinely care about your people. And it can't be lip service. You have to know that Ethan has four kids and he lives in South Carolina and he really likes fried chicken. Like you have to spend the time getting to care about people and create an environment where people care about each other. And I, I've heard you talk in the past about um, setting personal boundaries. Mm-hmm. I think does that probably goes a long way in leading by example of, of making your boundaries known to give other people the freedom to set their own boundaries to live the life they need to live to, to be a successful game developer, whether they're a parent of four or an, a 20-year-old, you know? Completely. And COVID really shone a light on this because it the pandemic was different if you are a parent of four, if you're a single person living alone or, you know, wh- whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance, it, it really showed that we're all different. We all have different needs. Some people want to work in an office and be inspired by that. Some people never want to go back to an office again. And I think being able to say, this is what I need and to have people in leadership respect that and for people in leadership to say, your work product is amazing. How can I support you so that you do more? of that and when you behave like that to people and treat people like they're human then their work product's going to be phenomenal and they're going to be excited and they're going to want to do their best they're not going to want to let you down because you've given them this first of all great pay great benefits you know great leave policies and the flexibility to say you know i can't work this morning for whatever reason but i'll i'll make sure that i get my stuff done and it's about trust yeah so Hopefully by now the audience has a sense of what I knew going in, which is what an incredible and wide-ranging career you've had and kind of what an an inspiring leader you can be. Um, Let's start with your new venture, Muse Collective. So tell me about Muse Collective, what it is, and kind of what its origin story is. Because this is your your foray into Web3, correct? Yes. Super exciting. Well, I'll just, I'll put a bow on the Covet stuff. I loved Covet. We made an amazing product. We had an an amazing team and then we were acquired by Electronic Arts. And Mm -hmm. so that would have been my, yeah. So I'm not, without, I'm not going to go too into this. Um, but we were acquired by Electronic Arts and I said, I can't do that again. I don't want that experience again. Um, you know, I'll lead enough. I I told my team immediately that it wasn't going to be a good fit for me. And um, I stayed through the transition and have since kind of said goodbye to that. And then I took some time off because I had, you know, we had this acquisition and I was able to, um, you know, say goodbye to the Covet team and get them supported with a wonderful leader um, who I personally interviewed and found for them before I left. And she's phenomenal. Um, So I took some time off. I did some consulting. Um, and then I was approached by my friends at Griffin Gaming Partners, um, who have really... The wonderful Griffin Gaming Partners, again, funders of, uh, of Network and Network Studios. And, you know, just pandering, just hopefully Ethan's future Web3 game studios will (laughs) be brought to you by Griffin, the fantastic, the best in the business, other than Connect Ventures, Mike. I'll put in a good word for you, Ethan, for sure. I'll call them up after this. Um, but yes, they're wonderful. And they're like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm taking a break. And they're like, but but fashion and Web3 and and gaming, it's the perfect it's the perfect synergy. And I'm like, I know, but I'm tired and I need to take a break. I want to spend time with my kids. I want to take up a new hobby, I want to, which I did. I started horseback like riding again. Horseback crazy. riding, that's great. I used to do it as a kid. Um, but you know, I want to, I want to just have some down, some downtime and they kept after me and they kept after me and they said, and I said, finally, I was like, look guys, I can't do this. I don't want to be a CEO. And they're like, well, what if you Mm -hmm. were the chair of the board and you hired a CEO and we incubated this company together? And so that's what happened. And I found the, I interviewed many, many women and found the most amazing CEO possible, Amber Bitzaler. And together we founded Muse Collective, which is an entertainment studio for the creator, gamer, and we like to say meta visionary in all of us. Um, and we talked about this in gaming and Web3 have traditionally been very male dominated. And mm-hmm. you know, just like we, any gaming in you know, the tech yes, industry tends to be at this for point. sure. And so 
we wanted to create a space that felt safe for women and non-binary people and, you know, not, you know, people who wouldn't traditionally be in it to have an easy on-ramp into Web3. But we're creating a game first. We're creating, a, we're creating a fashion game first, and it's going to be super fun and super engaging. And we're hoping to bring people on a journey with us into Web3 via a really fun game. So that's that's what we're doing. And I mean, it it it's um, it makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, um, fashion is something that's all about desirability. There's collectability to mm -hmm. um, fashion. Um, you're one of the most accomplished, most proven in the space when it comes to building teams that can build great games around fashion. And it like, I can understand why Griffin pursued you so hard. How, how did you know you didn't want to be the CEO? Well, I didn't want to have that. Uh, you know, I really love building games and I love building teams and I love building community. I don't love doing a bunch of legal stuff and a bunch of HR stuff and a bunch of like getting the insurance set up and um, benefits and really the groundwork of uh, building a company. And my our CEO Amber is phenomenal. At, she, you know, this is not her first rodeo. She had founded a company and sold it in the past. She's been wildly successful. And I knew that she would be able to do um, some of the stuff that she is passionate about, but, all, but also kind of give space to the creative, um, give me space creatively to help influence the game. And so she's very much part of the game as well, but I don't have to do the stuff that I don't like to do. I still, we're still doing fundraising and all of that, but it's not so, um, it's, it's not a full-time job for me. I don't work full-time, I work a lot, um, and I work enough so that so you're I, only I feel working good about the 57 team. hours a week then that's what you're saying. <laughs> no I work about I work about 20 hours a week give or take and some weeks oh. it's you know some some weeks it's 50 some weeks it's 10 and but that's again the freedom that we have we know what we're trying to do we're trying to build an amazing game and we're trying to hire a, a wonderful team and you know having a partner in amber who understands um, what I need to be doing right now and what my strengths are and what her strengths are we really complement each other well. She's so detail-oriented. She's so um, good at what she does that I feel very comfortable being like, I'll jump in here to the product. Like, let's get into this product discussion. Um, or, I'll, or I'll jump into, you know, let's talk about this fundraising acquisition or our amazing partner. We have an incredible partner with Revolve. Are you familiar with Revolve? Yeah, this is actually jumping ahead a little bit on my oh, question. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I know, it's good. No, no it's perfect. Yeah. I don't know anything about them. I, I saw the partnership yeah. announcement. Um, who is Revolve? Uh, as a white guy who wears basic tees, why should I care? And, and what's the nature of the partnership? So Revolve is an amazing kind of visionary company. They've been around since 2003, and they leverage digital channels and technology to really transform a shopping experience. They're one of the first um, digital-first companies that builds connections with their customers in real life and online. Um, they've been an incredible trailblazer in e-commerce and they really wrote the book on influencer marketing. Um, and so Web3 is the next step in their digital innovation journey, I would say. Um, Revolve's always been very connected to their consumers and um, they, if you go onto the Revolve site, you see really hot fashion and, they're, and they have their own brands, their Revolve and their forward brands, but they also bring together um, other brands, you know, like Alice and Olivia, other brands that are um, phenomenal. And to have them as a partner is what is kind of, it's just like the synergistic thing. We've got gaming, we've got amazing fashion partners, and we've got, we've got the Web3 component. So, right. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. 
With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com benchmarks now for more info. Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now, you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now, subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data, and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit exola.pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description. Now to get to the the most selfish part of the interview and and why I got you on. So I'm currently a solo founder in incubation mode looking for my partner, looking for, you know, for me, I need a tech co-founder to complement my product sense. And so I'm just curious what kind of the, for, for lack of a better word, like what was like the dating and courtship process with Amber? How did you two get hooked up and how did you know that, um, this was the right partnership to, to start or like, yeah, how did so, you know that you two were right for each other? Cause you're jumping yeah. in for like, what's going to be a minimum, a, a 10 year. We're getting, uh, we're getting married. Yeah. yeah, we are. We are. So Griffin helped me engage a search company to find a great CEO. Um, and all the while they were like, do you want to be the CEO? I'm like, no, I, I do not. I was very firm in my boundaries about knowing that the company would not be successful if I were the CEO. And with Amber as the CEO, I already feel, I already know that we're going to be successful. Um, so I interviewed many, many people and I wanted somebody that had gravitas, that had experience, that had, um, a passion for details. I think attention to detail is so important and is often dropped and met many, many people. And when I met Amber, um, I was introduced to her not via the search company. And I was introduced to her actually by Emily Wang, who is one of our board members on Griffin and she's phenomenal. And she said, Hey, just talk to Amber. You know, she doesn't have a traditional gaming background, but she's got great experience. See what you think. And I wrote to Amber and she immediately wrote back. She's like, looking forward to talking with you. Can I set up a Zoom for us? And I was like, yes, you are already taking the initiative and I don't have to set up the Zoom. It's little things like attention to detail that already, you know, and then when I spoke to her, I was like, she's phenomenal. She's poised. She is elegant. She cares about fashion. She knows about gaming. She's got tons of experience as a startup founder. And we genuinely liked each other. And so we hired her. We did the negotiation. And then we met up in person because I feel like that, you know, that was important for us. We met up in person. I invited her to my house and we spent three days together. And really, you know, I found out that she and I complement each other so well because I'm very creative and loving and exuberant and boisterous. And she is very creative, but detail oriented, um, strategic. She knows, you know, she's got the Excel ready to go. She, you know, prepares meticulously. Her grammar is perfect. And for me as a grammar nerd, so I really that's why I, I was that. rejected. Me <laughs> grammar, not good. No, your gender. You were right. Gender. You were gender. <laughs> Finally, the truth comes out. I needed a female <laughs> co-founder for sure. And our leadership team, our, our, our founding team is mostly female. We definitely have some great um, male members of our team, but um, and we, we do, it's very important to us to have um, women and people of color on our team, just again, for that diversity factor. But Amber is phenomenal. We spent great time together. 
And you know, neither of us has a tech background. So we knew that we need, and of course we're well-versed. You know, I've, I've been in it, I've been married to it, I know all, all about it, um, but I'm not a, you know, the VP of technology. And so that was the next big hurdle for us was as we're working on product together, as we're working on our brand together and who we are as a company, we knew that we needed to find an amazing technologist. And we have, we found that in John Wood who is in Boston and has been a great partner for us as well. Um, we also found a great head of marketing, Amanda, and um, wonderful head of creative and Heather and people that I've worked with on Covet. Um, and so we've just built this team who all share our values and, and our passion about creating amazing product for women and, you know, everyone but targeted at women. I, I don't think I asked this um, yet. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you kind of red pill on Web three? You did. You did mention earlier that like the this time in Web three reminds you of those early free to play games mm-hmm. days on mobile, and me as well. And that's kind of where I make all my metaphors and predictions mm-hmm. about what's going to happen. So, like, what convinced you that um, Web three was not a toxic cesspool of Twitter weirdos, but like actually an amazing business model and technology innovation that'll power the next great generation of, of game experiences. Well, I think there is some of that. I think there is some toxicity. There is a um, lot of it, unfortunately. And I think for us, you know, we need to like have the cream rise to the top for Web3, if that makes sense. Like the pendulum is swinging. Um, Web3 is amazing. Web3 is terrible. Web in you know, I think being that dramatic and being that, you know, declarative that the whole thing is, is terrible, isn't the right way to go. I think web three, um, is the future. And I think it just needs, the dust needs to settle on where we are so that, um, the real metaverse, the real web three can come out. And fashion has been a pioneer in the web three space. Um, I think fashion was late to kind of the first digital revolutions with e-commerce and social media, but it's been really cool to see some of the biggest brands jumping right in to experiment with Web3 and the metaverse, like Gucci and Roblox. You have Balenciaga and Fortnite. You have Burberry and Minecraft. Um, and really, the pandemic accelerated this with brands needing to move to digital spaces to showcase their collections and reach new consumers. And we know that Gen Z spends so much time on digital socializations, more than they do in real life. And digital collectibles in the metal closet really allow people to indulge in their passion for fashion. I hate that those two words rhyme, but it is, it is what it is. Um, with like minimal material impact, they're able to try on as many different outfits as they want in the metaverse and not have to commit. And there's also, you know, thinking about, um, the revolutions that we're in kind of right now where, you know, we're in, we're in a pandemic, we're out of a pandemic, I don't know, but we're still doing a lot of, um, not in-person things. And so it's an easy place, um, to be able to, um, to be able to experiment with clothes and with fashion. And so fashion jumping in the, on, into Web3 and gaming being the perfect kind of synergistic combination was, um, was really the impetus for, for this project. And, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier. You, y'all are building a game, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not an um, uh, a interoperability play with no native software, right? You're, exactly. you're building into your core strength of building a fashion game for fashion gamers. Yes, we are building a fashion game for all people to play and enjoy and where people can come together and learn about fashion to experience fashion. And it's a game first and there will be Web3 components, but we are, you know, we are making sure to build a gaming experience that will bring people in and people can engage and connect with like-minded fashion enthusiasts as they, as they play. And so that's the primary for us. And, you know, as, as we, we went through your CV, you've gone back and forth between James Bond, <laughs> Sims, Godfather, Covet, like uh, MMO. Like you've been, you've done a lot of games for the core gamer that I yep. represent with my bookshelf full of <laughs> Japanese punching and shooting games over here. Love and it. you've you've made plenty of games for um, fashion gamers, for female gamers. And, you know, I know both Sims and Covet um, from the demographics. It's not all women. Like, men men play no. it, too. Yes, they do. Um, so, um, 
what what are kind of some of the differences between a fashion gamer and more of a core gamer? Like, what do you think they're looking for that you're trying to bring to them in this new Muse Collective experience? Well, I think they definitely can overlap, like for sure. Like, you know, it was inter- interesting when I worked on The Sims, you know, people said we're not gamers, um, but we spend six hours a day on The Sims. And so if you spend six hours a day playing a game, you're a gamer. But, you know, a lot of people are really allergic to that term because it has it can have negative connotation. Um, and so I think, you know, the similarities between what we would call core gamers and more casual gamers are they want to be engaged. They want to have fun and they want to have a good experience. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to build something that both core and casual p- players can enjoy, which is a, a fun game. I can't, I can't talk too much about the it's game. Too, it's is, a little like, too early. I understand. It's too, it's too early, but like, I want to, Ethan, there's, I want to share. So right. in, in, a, in a few months, call me back and we'll, yeah. we'll go deep into the game and the gameplay and the mechanics. But we really want to make an experience for anybody, gamer or non-gamer alike, to pick up, um, to pick up our game and to... I almost gave away the name. I would get in so much trouble. I'm not going to do that. To, well, to if you say our... it, we can, we can edit anything can... out. Okay, good, good. Don't worry. Okay, just making sure. Um, but we want anyone to be able to pick up our game and have an experience where they are delighted, where they are engaged, with it, where they are challenged, and maybe where they learn something. And so I think, you know, if I was building a, a game for core players, there would be tried and kind of true mechanics um, for, for core gamers to engage right. them. I think that's I mean, I already true. know 50% of the feature mm-hmm. roadmap for my MVP just based on that my game's probably about punching or shooting, right? I've got, <laughs> I've got, I've got 50% of it that I could write generically about anything and it'll work for, for what I'm doing. Um, so but, you know what to do. Um, and I, and then we have that too. There's, there's kind of a pretty standard mobile playbook that we want to make sure that we engage players, but we also don't want it to look like anything else that's out there. We are inspired by some of the best games out there. Um, but we want to, you know, for me, you know, I've got this great experience with Covet and I've learned what to do, what not to do. And so I'm able to draw on that experience and the team is able to draw on their experience to really just say, you know, is this fun? Like you're playing the playable. Is this fun? Do I want mm. to come back to this? Like I am the target audience for this game, not like when I was building The Godfather, but do I enjoy this? Is this work to me or mm-hmm. is this fun? And making sure that um, it's easy to understand, making sure that um, you have you know, exciting hooks that, wanna, that you wanna come back to and making sure that there's moments of delight. I think those are some similarities between you know, what we would do for core and what we would do for casual. And we just wanna make it easy to understand, easy to play. And something that people, you know, this is where people experience fashion and where, where they tell their friends about. What, you know, I imagine on Covet, and actually I've, I've read a bunch on it, like the community and the engagement with the community and community interaction has been a, an important part of, of that game. And I imagine that turnaround story that you talked about mm-hmm. before. So how are you, and, and also part of what's so interesting about Web3 game development, where I see it working, is how close the community is to the development team, how much mm-hmm. they want to feel like they're part of the development, that they're investors and owners and players. And so kind of, I know it's early, but what are your thoughts about community building for for Muse Collective for how you know how early are you gonna go out? How are you are you gonna go on Discord or you know, mm-hmm. is it gonna be Facebook groups? Is it gonna be extra what like how are you gonna build the community that powers this this game? Yeah, so you're one hundred percent right. Community was critical to our covet turnaround. <clears throat> and what's so amazing about community is, you know, on, on Covet like-minded people were coming together to play a game and then they connected to each other. And we heard all of these amazing stories about why people stayed playing the game. They played because of, um, you know, their friends within the game. And one of the first things I did when I joined Covet was I made it easier for, our team made it easier for people to connect. And having, you know, there were fashion houses in Covet, but they were hard to get into. And so we made it really easy for players to connect with each other. And we're going to adopt some of those strategies with with our game, what Muse is, is doing. We're absolutely building our social channels. I mean, Dis- Discord is where you need to be for Web3. We're already starting to do that. Um, we are, we'll definitely, we are going to go where the player is. 
Um, and so <clears throat> as we build out that strategy, which I don't know exactly what it is yet, but we know that community is an underpinning of how we're going to make this product successful because we want players to feel like they're part of it. We're already reaching out to people that we think will love the game so that they can do early testing with us and have early conversations with us. We want them to be ambassadors for our game um, on Discord, on Facebook, wherever they are. Um, so that we can begin to create the community because we know um, that community is what makes you come back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's um, my experience on Legendary. It would be common to talk to a high-level guild player, you know, someone who is in one of the top guilds in the game and been playing for years, and for them to say, you know, at this point the game is actually secondary to me. It's hanging out in the chat room and, and talking to my guildmates and okay. they're the reason I'm still here. Cause you know, I'm kind of bored on the gameplay game designer. Could you give me something new and fun to do? Cause like, yep. I'm really just here for my people at this point. That's a hundred percent what it is. And then you, as the game designer, have the opportunity to throw some new challenge out that re-engages them. And mm -hmm. if you get people who are passionate players, they will be ambassadors for you. And they will, you know, as we all know with mobile user acquisition is the, biggest nut that everyone mm -hmm. has to crack. And so if you have an engaged community that are interested and you are able to provide new experiences for them and keep the game alive for them, then they're going to continue to play and then they're going to tell their friends to play. And it's just going to continue to be pretty amazing. Yeah. I want to circle back to something we started talking about earlier, which was um, kind of toxic culture, workplace toxicity. Um, and I know I've, again, I've heard you talk on, on podcasts about how important culture building is to teams that you're establishing or teams that you're building. So like, what, uh, I'll start with when you're thinking of building the, uh, when you and Amber are working on, what is the culture of Muse Collective mm -hmm. going to be? Or when you're building up a new team, how do you go about intentionally creating a, a positive and supportive culture? Right. Like, well, what again to the selfish part, what what tips do you have for me? How can I how can I actually do this on purpose and not have culture be a thing that happens, but a thing that happens intentionally? Well, I love that you're asking that because it shows that you care. And so there you are with step one is caring. Um, and I think that's the secret sauce is genuinely caring about other humans. And so it starts with hiring. When we're Yuck. interviewing people, Just, I know, I know you do have to genuinely care about humans. Um, otherwise, you shouldn't be a leader. Right. Um, or you could make a game by yourself and well, in the closet. Sarah, I think we've solved it. I'm already yeah. in the closet by myself. So yeah, well, good, good luck finding people who want to work in your closet. Um, <clears throat> you know, getting back to your question, it really starts with the interviews. You know, when you've made a connection with a person and when we have our interviews and Amber and I did a lot of joint interviews initially when we were trying to find our people. And it really talked, before we had any of the interviews though, Amber and I and some of the early team members like Amanda, um, we, we started thinking about who we wanted to be as a culture. Like we wanted to put our leave policies online. We wanted to make mm -hmm. sure that our benefits are phenomenal. One of, you know, when you're, when you're founding a company, one of the things that you may or may not skimp on is benefits. But we wanted to have, we wanted to be a small startup with, you know, Google-esque benefits because... Mm -hmm people need to be taken care of. And if you mm. feel like you're being taken care of, you're gonna do your best work. So putting our leave policy online, setting up phenomenal benefits. One of our employees came to us and was like, I really wanna do this master's program. Is there any way you can help pay for it? And we're like, well, we can't pay for all of it because dang, that's expensive, but mm -hmm. we will contribute X you know, thousand dollars to your education. And then, hey, maybe we should do that for everybody. And you know, it's things like that where you, again, genuinely care about people's well-being and who they are in their lives inside and outside of work that make the difference. And so in the in the interviews, Amber and I would start with, this is who we are as a company. We care about people. We care about culture. We care about, we don't want to be an, an organization where we work 24-7. There will be times as we're making a game where there's, there's going to be a little bit of crunch. There will be times where you have to pull some extra hours, but that should not be the norm and that should not be standard at all. And mm -hmm. your life is the most important thing. And your family, if you have one, or, you know, your cat, whatever, whatever it is that's important to you should come first. And we're going to support you. We're completely distributed. So we don't meet in person at all, though we're going to try and do that 
excuse me, we're going to try and do that a couple of times a year. But on Mondays, we all meet together as a team at 9 a.m. and we have an hour where it's not about work. It's just about kind of talking to each other and we ask about how the other the people's weekends were. We kind of go around and Amber does this fun thing where she brings out a box and it's the question of the day. And mm-hmm. it's like a random question. Like if you were a spider, what kind of spider would you be? Or something like that. Something totally random. And I, I saw you just thinking about that answer. Ethan, what, your black widow? An orb weaver? <laughs> whatever Spider-Man, whatever spider turns people into Spider-Man. That's, that's okay, the spider I want to be. I love it. I, somebody is going to know the answer to that. I'm yeah. not that person. Oh, but, actually, so, that was a terrible answer because that spider's radioactive and it probably died after it bit Spider-Man. So, totally I mean, I guess yeah. you're going out in a blaze of glory, but. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could be that spider. That could be the, the <laughs> spider that you want to be. That right. could be, you could be going out in a blaze of glory. But we ask each other these questions, you know, it's like, what's your favorite food as a child? You know, things that are totally mm-hmm. random and would, would come up eventually. It's harder right. when you're remote and distributed. Yeah. So the, we, we connect in these ways. And we also, you yeah, know, you, we do help. It's, yeah. it's interesting and, and very smart because there's a type of glue that naturally forms when you like get coffee with people and get lunch mm-hmm. and go out for beers afterwards. Or yep. When you're around people that like, um, even when you're busy, even when you're, you know, approaching a milestone, there's still time to like feel like humans together where when mm-hmm. it's pure remote, it's really easy to say like, oh, I'm turning down these coffee requests on my calendar because I've got tasks to do. I just want yeah. to get my tasks done and then do the dishes and get in my pajamas and rest, you know. That's 100% true. Well, I, I generally am wearing pajamas on the bottom all the time, just really fancy tops, um, fashion tops. Right. So that is important. We also do like, we celebrate things. So for Halloween, we did like this trivia thing. We've done like bartending things. Um, I won trivia, by the way. And I think I really scared some of the team members because I had someone say, I've never seen this side of you. (laughs) But um, one thing I wanted to mention also on the team building is that it does help if you've worked together in the past. And so there are a couple of people from the Covet team, a couple of people that I've worked with in the past. On our engineering team, we have a lot of people that have worked together, um, and so they've kind of established those cultures, and now we are able to like be even stronger because we we have had those connections. And we do try to meet in person, little groups. I'm having a group coming next week. Somebody, one of Susan from our New York office is coming home for Thanksgiving, so we're going to have lunch together with a few of the Northern California team members. So we do try to get together because those in-person meetings are powerful. But it's also powerful to be able to say, I need to work in Boston or I need to work in New York and I need yeah, to work absolutely. in, you know, wherever. And so you get the best people by allowing them to work where they want to work and on the hours they need to, to do their best work. Yeah, there's there's part of me that like, because I'm living through this right now, that when I'm writing to people on LinkedIn and I say some like my instinct is to type out, I'm looking for someone to join me building a remote first culture that allows everybody to live a full and complete life mm-hmm. and like part of me is like well do I sound like some too much of a San Francisco woo-woo hippie that my first email contact with you is I want to make sure that we're building a culture where we can live a full and complete life but like well here, part here's of me, the thing yeah. yeah go ahead Oh, yeah. You're going to attract the right people. Exactly. Like, if you write, you, that may be San Francisco woo-woo. I don't know. I am that. Right. But you're going to attract, if somebody's like, oh, that guy sounds like an idiot, then you don't want that person exactly. anyway. Yeah. You want someone who, who's going to be attracted to that kind of energy and that kind of email and be like, yes, this is my person. So I would definitely do that. Lead authentically. Be who you are. Send these emails saying, I want to build this. And you're going to attract people who want that. So I say, go for it. Sorry, I totally cut you off. That's but great. I was excited. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, I'm and it's probably because of like where I am now being a father of young kids and about to turn, you know, being kind of this demographic joke as I'm months away mm-hmm. from being, you know, the boring 40 year old white suburban dad guy. Happy but like, birthday. I look. Thank you. But I I look back at, you know, my career and my life choices in my 20s. And when I really dedicated it all to it was just making video games and, Mm -hmm. you know, playing kickball and just like thinking about that time and feeling like, hey, there's a lot of parts of my life that I didn't discover until I was older um, because I because family forced me to not 
be someone who just only cared about career. And I actually regret giving it all to video games. Like what a toxic yeah. attitude and behavior that was. So like yep. trying to think about how to build a, a game studio that, that, that does allow somebody to live a well-rounded life and where the assumption isn't like that fucking Twitter email where it's like, yeah. you're going to work long hours or get the fuck out. Like if I saw that, I'd be That's like, disgusting. quit. Yeah, I, it, yeah, it I would, made my skin I, crawl. Me too, but it also made me say, oh, that's a bummer. I enjoyed Twitter back in the day. Like, now it's going. No one of quality is going to work in a place where they feel disrespected and abused. And that's exactly, you know, I'm not in Twitter, so I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't work for them. But when I saw that email, I was like, vomit. This is horrible. Mm. And you can create a culture like that. And I think what the pandemic has given us is a wake-up call to be like, we can do more. We can create, um, and with Covet, you know, there were times that we worked crazy hours, but most of the time it was, I have four kids and mm -hmm. they are my priority. I am a mom, I have a career, I have started a, a studio, but you know, you have to have help and you have to have people who are backing you up, but you can create an environment where you can work really hard in a, in a normal, like kind of well-rounded way and create amazing product. And yeah. I think the people are going to realize, why did I ever work the way I worked? And mm -hmm. I, I worked my tail off, you know, at EA for, for rich executives to make money. Right. And it's, it's BS because yeah. I'm, I'm working, now I'm working for myself and I'm passionate about it and I get to, you know, be excited and I can choose what hours I want to work because, you know, this is the culture that we're building. Um, but I'm not, you know, making money for some executive. Because, right. you know, I'm building something meaningful. And really, I'm building for our players. I'm building something for our players. I, you know, people's time is their most precious commodity. And for them to say, I want to give my time to something you've built, I mean, what can yeah. be greater than that? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a, a lot of what's bleeding through is, is at Muse Collective. You're trying to build a culture um, where people can experience joy and ownership in their work and that their work is a portion of their life, but it's not their whole life. And it's like, it, 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 um, it, it sounds like an inspiring organization to be a part of basically. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think we, we're building that and we have amazing advisors, um, and a wonderful team behind us. And so I feel really, really fortunate um, you know, Felicia Day is one of our advisors and oh, she's cool. been very involved. Um, Mitch Matthews Spradlin, who's the former CEO of, of marketing at Microsoft. Um, you know, we have these great advisors who, and more that are coming, um, who really care about what we're building and are supporting our culture and recognizing that you can't do things alone. Mm -hmm. Like I know what my strengths are. I know what my weaknesses are and finding partners and people who can kind of fill in those gaps it's really part of building something incredible. It's like recognizing that I'm not great at, you know, spreadsheets or whatever. Right. Sorry, we should probably cut that out. We've gone over, right. I know, but Sarah um, is the best at spreadsheets. Sarah's she just really good chooses at not to be mm -hmm. some days. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, let, let me, um, this has been incredible. And, and thank you for letting me be a parent podcaster and having a two year old on the interrupt. Um, That's life. That's life. That's that's our modern life. Um, I know, you know, it's it's early. We can't talk about the game too much or the chain or the, the name of it. But what's kind of looking to 2023, what are going to be some of the big beats or some of the signs of success for Muse Collective? Like, what are y'all working towards um, currently? Well, we're working towards our soft launch. Um, and we're very, very excited about getting um, product into players' hands and getting that initial feedback. Because mm -hmm. as you know, it never nothing's ever perfect the first time. Right. And it takes a lot of iteration and soft launch and making sure we hit those KPIs that we need to be successful. But, but more importantly, making sure that we put something in people's hands that feels good and fun and inspiring. And so we're gonna do a lot of play testing um, as, we put, as we work towards our soft launch and as we, as we work towards our global launch. Awesome. And if someone's been listening today and they check out the Muse Collective website and any, mm -hmm. any openings you have and they've been inspired by your history and the, the talented team you're building up and, and the vision for the collective, how can they reach out? Uh, I, I would say reach out via LinkedIn. Um, reach out to me. Let me know if you are interested. And we've got, we do have some open positions. 
and we're looking to, to build a great company with amazing people. So, and I'd love to hear from people. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your uh, experience and your knowledge and for giving me some free career culture, uh, uh, <laughs> career coaching on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And this has been a Anytime. delight. For me as well. Thank you. And uh, please give Eliza a big hug when she wakes up from her nap because I felt like she added a lot to our conversation. <laughs> a lot of energy. She brought a lot of energy yeah. to it today. All right. Thanks so much, Sarah. Great to see you again. Thanks. Bye. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructorofun.com slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.